Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Good. You sound surprisingly well. Oh, uh, I don't think you're that surprised. You dragged me kicking and screaming into the modern age of podcasting. <laughs> For those who don't know what that means, I got a new microphone. And it sounds marvelous. <laughs> you sound marvelous. Well, the thing is, like, our listeners are, they deserve the best. And now, now they have at least uh, average. <laughs> <laughs> we are slowly raising our game up to mediocre, and we hope to someday achieve, uh, yeah, uh, decent. Slightly above average. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Can't promise we'll get there, but, you know, hey, we're trying, right? That's right. So uh, today we kind of have a topic that I know is near and dear to both of our hearts multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, we were talking about this earlier <laughs> in the week when we were thinking about, you know, topics and, and things like that for the show. And, you know, I said, well, we could talk about MFA, but it'd be like the shortest episode ever. And, it, the, you know, the, the talk track was something like, you know, hey, Jim, how do you feel about multi-factor authentication? You have to do it. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So we'll talk to you guys <laughs> in the next episode. <laughs> Just leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we could do that on. We could just do that with one tweet. Yeah, and and, and I have I have tweeted it from the at uh, IDAC podcast Twitter account um, a few different times around MFA, and I guess that's probably a good place to start because I did put out a tweet there recently. Um, I want to say it was July twenty third, I believe, where there was uh, some news made around Instacart. Um, some people have been complaining about Instacart. Uh, accounts being breached. And what Instacart did was they put out a statement essentially saying that, uh, yes, that there had been some issues with their with user accounts becoming breached, but that it was due to credential stuffing attack, which basically means uh, the bad actors had somehow come in possession of IDs and passwords that were used on other sites and then credential stuffing is basically taking those IDs and password combinations and trying them on a whole bunch of other different sites, including Instacart, and hoping that the user has used the same ID and same password elsewhere, which is extremely common, especially uh, folks who are not maybe as, you know, up to speed on the security impl implications of using the same password everywhere. And it's, you know, it's a very common thing. And basically blamed the entire kind of thing on the credential stuffing and users using the same password across uh, different services, including their own, encouraging them to change them to a new password, which I don't know about you, Jim, but I thought that was kind of a tone deaf response. This is just me personally thinking about it uh, because they don't even offer multi-factor authentication as an option to protect people from users. And it got us thinking, I think, you know, I, and I feel like MFA should be kind of the baseline stance at this point. It's 2020, password is not good enough, hasn't been for a long time. And if you're an, an application or a service offering that has an authentication offering somehow into it, which most do, that at a bare minimum, you should at least offer MFA as a service. If the user in maybe the consumer space decides not to take advantage of it, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's, you know, 
it's probably a bad idea, but at least you're offering the tool to make them have a, you know, a stronger authentication experience. So that was just kind of my thought around it. What do you think? I, well, first I want to say that tone deaf, you stole my line. That is exactly the term I was going to throw out there. And obviously it's a, it's a catchy phrase uh, in our society today, but I mean, you nailed it. Um, but I do want to start with two things because I want to say, first off, Instacart, I love their service. So I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> bash Instacart as a service. And also I don't want to bash our practitioner, you know, who the, the IAM or the security people are over there because that is not what we're about. I mean, I think we all understand the challenges of working for a big corporation, the IAM program manager or the, the security lead at that company doesn't have autonomy to make whatever decisions they want. Um, usually security projects compete with other projects for funding. And, you know, it really um, takes strong leadership from within the organization who understand the importance of security to give that extra priority to uh, security investments. So having said all that, we're not, we're not bashing our, our fellow practitioners over at Instacart. However, I want to say a few things. So, um, what you know, blaming the user for a security breach, I think, is is just weak sauce, big time. Um, people are going to use the service you provide them, and they're going to go through the security requirements that you have in place. And if you are breached, um, take ownership. Take ownership. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's kind of a, a PR issue in a way because blaming the user is just, like I said, I use the term weak sauce, it's tone deaf, it's, it's all of the above. Um, I do think that MFA should at least be an option. That's the point that you made. Um, you know, at least like some kind of adaptive MFA, right? It's you've, certainly Instacart has people's email address at the very minimum. Uh, if you notice that somebody is logging in from a new device or a new location that they've never logged in from, you certainly ask them to, to step it up. Uh, the other thing is, usually when you have password stuffing, right, you have a bot that's running from the same IP address and it's hitting the same uh, login screen and trying to log in with multiple credentials. I mean, that should tell you right there, you should have software that picks up on that um, abnormal pattern, and you should be taking evasive actions. So, um, you know, I think overall, what's coming out from this, it, it looks like there's a, an underinvestment in uh, technology to prevent these types of attacks. I think that, um, you know, MFA is, is it should be a minimum. And um, certainly the PR group, I think, needs to take a different approach going forward. One other thing I throw out there is that this hack happened what? Like, uh, I think you said July 23rd, um, that's a week ago. You know, we might not know the full extent yet. How often do we see, oh, a hack, you know, exposed the credentials of 500 people or a couple thousand people. Then, you know, a couple of months later you realize, oh no, it was, it was actually 10 million people. <laughs> like, much worse than, because I mean, look, if you were, password stuffing and um, there were insufficient controls and you found the, you know, the administrative account or an account that had elevated credentials within that system, 
Um, you know, you're not going to say, hey, guys, by the way, we also have access to your database. Um, you're just going to slowly and silently steal the, the keys to the kingdom kind of information. You're going to do what you can to get around. And, um, you know, based on the PR response I, I saw, I'm not thinking that um, if uh, I'm guessing that there's more to come or there could be more to come. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly, there's always that risk, right, of the, the trickle of information. Um, and I know I went right on the offensive, right? I jumped right on Instacart right from the get-go. So I don't want, and, and I think you hit something important there. I don't necessarily place the blame on the security team at Instacart. I think this was absolutely a business decision because every security person I know understands the importance of having the proper security measures in place from an information security team perspective, right, in a program, I feel like somewhere a business decision was made to not invest in, you know, this type of technology, despite maybe the recommendations that come from, you know, the security side of things, or maybe even compliance or audit or something like that. Um, and, you know, now, now the repercussions of it are coming along. So, um, and I think you brought up a very important thing, is, and it's that, yeah, you're right, security teams and IAM programs and IAM people don't necessarily um, you know, have the, the decision-making authority for an entire organization when it comes to these types of things. So, you know, this is probably more of a message to our CISOs who probably get it already, but our CEOs and CIOs and the other folks that are listening is, you know, at least establish a baseline security. And I, and, and that should include some form of multi-factor authentication. Um, I do like the adaptive approach, you know, using, um, you know, maybe physical location or geolocation type triggers, right? IP addresses, things like that to try and figure out if this is a standard login or if maybe they need to step up somewhere. Um, you don't want to ruin the entire authentication experience um, if you, you know, and, and have it be so obtuse and difficult to use that nobody can log in. <laughs> but at the same time, you need to have that base level of protection because you know people are going to use the password across different systems. It's this is yep. not new information. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, Jeff, when we were at the uh, Kupinger Cole conference in it, it was a Siam focused conference, I think it was October of last year, and we kind of workshopped around the anatomy of a breach and putting yourself in the shoes, you know, this information kind of comes to the decision makers piecemeal, right? You find out that something happened and then you find out, you know, you do a little more research, you find out the extent of it, or you find out the data was dumped on the dark web and you're getting this information one bit at a time. Um, I think that uh, that planning process of, you know, this is something that every organization, every practitioner can take away from this is kind of think through the scenario of if your organization ran into, you know, X breach. So we don't know exactly what the extent of the breach is, but as these things happen, one of the things that always stuck out in my, that stuck out in my mind from that conference is, is, you know, they had somebody from the FBI there, right? At some point you have to say, uh-oh, we have to get the FBI involved. I want you to open the door for the FBI to come in and do an investigation. You're, you're starting to... Uh, 
you're ceding some control over the process, right? But there may come a point where you realize that that's we we have to get law enforcement involved in what happened here. And so obviously nobody wants to get there. So it's really about trying to put the protections in place ahead of time. And when you think through those scenarios, and, and to your point, as as a practitioner, as a leader within information security, it's about getting ahead of it, educating your um, educating your leadership of your organization, your decision makers uh, on you know what is what is what are the risks and what are the investments to help mitigate those risks. So you're never going to get down to zero risk, uh, but you know, look, here goes another one where the, um, you know, sometimes our clients ask us, well, what are the motivations? What, what, what motivates the hackers? It's a variety of things, but look at this one, this Instacart one, they didn't come away with, um, they did not come away with uh, credit card numbers, right? Because it sounds, at least from the article I read, uh, Instacart uses a third-party payment processor, but last four digits of a credit card number sometimes can be used uh, and whatever other, ever other information is, PII information, somebody dumped that on the dark web. What could their motivation be? They could just be having fun. There could be, it sounds like they're selling these accounts for probably not a lot of money, but, um, you know, who knows who pulled off this hack? Sometimes you find out these hacks were pulled off by an 18-year-old. So they went and got a database of usernames and passwords and then ran some script that they downloaded off the dark web against uh, a login screen, and they're ha- getting some some kicks out of it. And all of a sudden, they've got PII information on X number of users. Now they can resell that, uh, at, you know, and sell it in Bitcoin. And now they have money to go out and 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 buy stuff. In the meantime, this is costing Instacart real money. It's costing them in terms of PR, uh, you know, which leads to um, you know, knock on how much their brand is really worth. Um, you know, this particular incident might not be the end all be all, but who knows where this incident is going to lead, you know, now that that PII information is out there, you know, what's the, what's the next thing that can happen? What's the next chip that can fall? So it's really about educating, uh, the, the decision makers within your organization to make the proper investments, things like, you know, hammering away with passwords, with stuffing credentials. That's something that should have been detected during the during the process and stopped yeah and you know credential stuffing and and attacks like that are really good at building dossiers on people uh, information right because you can associate all this metadata around the individual and start to put together a picture of who the person is what are their preferences you know things like that and, you know, let's say, you know, someone does have Instacart data and they have data from the MGM hack where, you know, they know where the person was, what they were eating, you know, some of the things maybe they're buying, stores they frequent, you know, and all of that is just operational intelligence that can be used by somebody, uh, you know, to target, essentially. So, right. you know, I think we've, I think we've beaten up Instacart pretty well here, but it's not, you know, it's, it's really the response. I think that I, I, that I don't agree with in the fact that, you know, MFA isn't a baseline. They haven't even made an announcement that they're going to be improving the security and that, you know, they take security seriously. And, you know, I said it in my tweet on on the at IDAC podcast uh, uh, account that, 
you can't take things seriously if you're not even offering the basics of security and MFA is, is one of those. So right. That's that's yeah, my soapbox, and I'm gonna kick it out away from me now. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Before we get too far, I know we've been talking about MFA. There's also, and that's multi-factor authentication. There's also 2FA, uh, which is a subset of multi-factor, um, which is basically two forms of authentication. Um, MFA is, and it's definition, right? Something you know, something you have, something you are. Um, and then 2FA is basically saying, you know, give me any two of, the, give me two of those things and we can, you know, authenticate the individual. I see a, a common mistake where uh, people are using two of the same things. So it cannot be true multi-factor or 2FA in some cases where they may say, okay, you need to enter your password. And then, you know, here's a challenge response question that you also need to set up. Those are two, some things, you know, it doesn't introduce, you know, another form of authentication, either the something you have or the something you are a component of it. Um, and then I've mentioned United example before United Airlines, they have a KBA system when you go to log into a new computer where you ask you a bunch of terrible questions that are like things like favorites, which I am so not a fan of. Um, but there's probably a role there for KBA to be used as the lowest common denominator in some areas. Um, what are your thoughts on using KBA or knowledge-based authentication as a second form of authentication? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to pragmatism. Um, I think, so we pick on United all the time. And again, we, you know, we don't mean to point the finger at our fellow practitioners. That's not our goal here, but our goal is to help uh, educate our community in terms of what is best practice. But the pragmatic approach here is that you do run into scenarios where implementing true multi-factor authentication um, is deemed by the business as too heavy handed. It's not, you know, we don't want to push people away by making our authentication process so hard and uh, okay, what's the risk? And, you know, and, and as the information security person, sometimes you're pushing upstream. And so, you know, my feeling on what United is doing by, you know, noticing, hey, you haven't logged in with this device. Let's ask for a second piece of information. Uh, asking for information doesn't make it that much more secure, but it probably makes it a tiny bit more secure. So in other words, if I went out and um, had looked on uh, the dark web and said, okay, well, now I've got a credential. And now, boom, Jim McDonald reused his credential now on United. Okay, great. Now I get this KBA question where it's asking what, um, you know, what country did I grow up in, or what's my favorite ice cream, or something. Well, now I have to have that additional piece of information. Now, do I think that that couldn't be socially engineered, or, or um, it couldn't be uh, somehow guessed? No, I don't. You know, I'm not. I'm not making. I'm not making the case that that this KBA is is uh, the way to go. But it probably may, you know, one thing that you potentially could come away from it with is that it makes it just a little bit more difficult. So the script kiddies out there aren't doing what we just talked about with Instacart, where all you need is username, password. It's not doing any uh, new device recognition or, or um, context 
uh, context being like, okay, what country you're logging in from, things like that, that maybe make it say, you know, hey, we're going to ask you for something else. And in fact, if you don't have anything else, but so where do I think KBA could, could really be useful is in a scenario where you really don't have any additional option because the business is pushing back or you inherited, you know, a, an IAM space where you've got, you know, millions and millions of users and they've never registered for uh, multi-factor and this is what you have. And you have a little bit of KBA data that you could potentially use for uh, stepping up the authentication. But it's interesting, you brought up MFA, 2FA. There's also strong authentication. There's step-up authentication, adaptive authentication, continuous authentication. In some cases, they all have nuances. In some cases, they have just that these terms got popular at different times and they don't really have a... a um, a defined context or that, you know, what happens sometimes is that in our society, a term will become popularized and then it, the, the true definition gets blurred. It becomes the, the lingua franca. And I, I kind of think of MFA and 2FA in a lot of people's mind is the same thing, right? But you, you highlighted the difference that multi-factor means you're using more than one of the factors. It doesn't actually mean that you're only using two of them. You could be using three of them. You could be asking a person 10 different things all within those three factors, but that you're hitting at least two of the different, uh, two of the different factors, whereas two-factor authentication, I think, could be potentially two items within the same factor. And it could be even multiple people. I think of, you know, the movie scene, right, where they're on the submarine and they're looking to launch missiles and, you know, the, the captain and the first officer both have to turn their keys and put in their codes. I mean, there's there's layers of MFA happening all over that kind of stuff, which, you know, for for obvious reasons, makes a lot of sense there. Um, yeah, you, you talk about a few different things. And I think one of the important things with all those different types of authentications is that is the word pragmatism that you used also, right? There's going to be different use cases for different types of users. You've got corporate employees, you've got vendors, you've got contractors, you've got hourly, maybe your frontline workers, you've got external users like customers, right, for an organization. You know, each of those types of users are going to have, um, you know, different methods where MFA may be appropriate, right? It's It probably makes sense to, well, back in the old days, right, send out an RSA token, a physical token with the number changing on it and everything. Uh, to your corporate employees and say, hey, this is how you're going to log into, you know, our systems remotely. Is that something that's viable for a customer? Doubt it, <laughs> right? So you start to lean on other forms of MFA like SMS, um, you know, email, uh, magic links, which is something Slack, for example, does, right? If you forget um, or if you just want to log in directly, as long as you get to your email account, you know, they'll show you a link that lets you get to different things. So I think it's important to understand that you're going to probably have multiple method, methods of uh, authentication types or MFA uh, types to tokens, the SMS, the email, um, app, apps, right? Using the push. So like the Microsoft app or the Google Authenticator app or LastPass or um, what's the other one that um, is on the, on the app, Authy, I think it is. Uh, right, so there's there's a lot of these different kind of MFA apps, right, and push. Um, you've got biometrics, right, doing things around maybe 
um, you know, a voice system where you, your voice is your password, those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I think you, you know, it's all of our challenge, right? We, we do a podcast for this industry in general, but the practitioners are dealing with within their organization or their client's organization, specific challenges. So um, I think a couple of notions are relevant risk-based approach, right? If you have something that's extremely high risk, you're going to have to figure out a way to implement multi-factor at a very strong level. But as the risk of the access lessens, the need to secure the account lessens, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. If all you, if all your login does is gives you access to some very basic things, and if it was compromised, it's not the end of the world, you can go with um, fewer hurdles, right? Um, the, the, another notion here is um, there's a framework that NIST uh, developed many moons ago called Level of Assurance Framework. It's this document 800-63. And the, the reason that's imprinted in my brain was I worked with the university, um, you know, about five, six years ago, and, and they were real high on that. Um, there's a, a group in the university uh, field called In Common, and they have a In Common uh, level of assurance framework. And it really helps for other universities to know that, okay, university, the, the other university I want to federate with adopts this level of assurance framework so that I can be sure that they, you know, as they pass me a SAML federation, they can tell me what love, what level of assurance they have for that specific user. And I can apply um, my security policies based on that. So, you know, those notions are very helpful, but I mean, to kind of get to some real world examples, one of the things that we've run into, usually with corporate employees, you know, uh, to use the term white collar employees, people who use computers regularly, they usually have smart devices. Um, at least within the context of, you know, on the United States, we can usually ask people to use their personal devices. But even that, I, I don't think you can just universally say everybody's going to be willing to use their their Android or iPhone for corporate purposes. Really, that's, you know, you're going to have to figure that out within your organization context, but smartphones is, is becoming expected. But we can't think of the public as everybody having smartphones. Um, I have a funny little side story. There is a person who works out at the gym, and my son and I run into him, and he breaks out his flip phone. And the one time I, my son goes, Dad, did you see he has a flip phone? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that. That almost doesn't register with me because I remember those being pretty commonplace. But for him, it's like, I've never seen one of those things. There's somebody who actually has a flip phone. Um, so, but, you know, even imagine this context. So uh, we worked with a client recently who um, they supported some folks. They had some, some contract type folks who worked out of prisons. If you are staff at a prison, you cannot bring a phone into the prison period, right? You know, so what can you use as a second factor in that case? Well, again, it comes down to, let's take a look with our risk-based approach, how much security do we need to apply? And then we have to look at, at the different options. You brought up a couple of options, which I thought were really cool, including the voice biometrics, you know, and that can become 
kind of that that low common denominator where a person doesn't even have a phone, but they or they don't have a, a cell phone necessarily, but they have a hardwired phone. So it might be a mix and match. Generally, though, where you need to start is um, your highest risk scenario. So this would be the the corporate employees, but even on top of that, uh, privileged access and access coming from outside of your network. Now, I'm not saying being on the network necessarily ensures that the person is who they say they are. That's certainly not the case. I mean, if you use zero trust security framework as, as a baseline, you certainly can't trust the fact that the person has a network IP address that that we can trust that they are who they say they are. Uh, however, if we're taking a risk-based approach, the person coming through the VPN is is riskier than the person who has a, a, a LAN IP address. Yeah, there's no really one size fits all, right? And you got to have different options and try to put the pieces of the puzzle together to make sure that you achieve the security posture or stance that you're looking to get, right? To reduce the attack surface, that you're addressing the user experience as part of that, because if it's too hard, people can't take advantage of the service. It's too easy that it's ineffective. So being able to marry up what are the right approaches for the right types of user populations, you know, makes a lot of sense. And um, you don't want to assume that you just have a one size fits all. Um, you bring up an interesting point and that's around personal devices and leveraging personal devices for your work MFA. Um, personally, I don't care. I'd rather carry one device. And this is something that I've you know, done for ages is I use my personal device as, you know, my thing. And, you know, if work wants to put their agent or their certificate or whatever on it in exchange for me having to only carry one device and not have to have be like Batman with, you know, eight different phones on me or pagers or <laughs> whatever they may be for me, that's, you know, that's the decision that I've made, but there, you know, there are people who the expectation is that if work wants to use my personal device, they should pay for it, which, you know, can be open to all kinds of interpretations and is not a, um, it, it, it intends to be a roadblock, I think, for some areas where, uh, you know, cell phones are not maybe uh, issued by the business and they have more of like a BYOD uh, type strategy. So it is something to account for as part of planning. And that's where some of these other methods, you know, make sense. Um, and you want to make sure that you rely on that. Um, hey Jeff, I, I, that, um, yeah. I love that story that you tell. You worked for a large retail organization and you had retail uh, employees and, you know, it's a mixed bag of folks that you get in there and there's a high turnover and you used IVR for that. Do you want to kind of talk about that story? Yeah, I will try to keep it um, a little bit general just to not throw all the secrets out there. But yeah, the idea was that, and this is really more of a password reset scenario, right? Um, hundreds of thousands of users around um, the US and really, I guess now the world. Um, and we had gone in and we're just getting off the ground with an IAM program. This would have been the early 2000s. So probably like 2005, maybe, maybe 2000, mid 2000s, 2005 ish, somewhere in that area. And we uh, set up a self-service password reset system. And for our retail users who could not um, access a computer or we weren't comfortable giving them access to it within the retail environment, we set up a phone line that had voice biometrics. And as long as you had pre-enrolled with the system and set up uh, your voice print so that it matched um, 
your profile, and we had a secure method to do that, you could go in and then reset your passwords to any number of systems. Now, this is old school, so I'm sure it's gotten a lot better, you know, since then. <laughs> but, you know, it was a way for us to um, provide a secure way to reset passwords for our many, 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 you know, retail users. Do you get a lot of usage? I'm not sure <laughs> at this point. Um, you know, like I said, that was almost 15 years ago, probably, the, you know, by now. So I'm not sure if it's still in place or not. I guess I have a magnet somewhere that we use for marketing. <laughs> I should probably call the number and see if it still works or not. But uh, it worked and it was accurate and, you know, it was secure enough for us to take advantage of. It was, you know, definitely in the 9899 when it comes to accuracy. And I learned a lot about voice prints and how that all works uh, to make sure that, you know, things were working as working as they should, but it's, it's a use case. I don't hear too much about it now, uh, but it is something that, you know, I have some experience with in the past and, um, you know, my experience was positive with it. And it certainly, I feel still an option that could be out there. Well, one of the things I liked that you did there was you applied um, the risk based approach to use cases, right? So you weren't using the voice print for multi-factor authentication uh, per se to log into the application, but you're using it for the use case of resetting, of essentially preventing social engineering, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than calling the help desk and saying, you know, I'm John and I, you know, I got a line of 20 customers, you got to reset my password or I'm gonna have to tell these people to leave the store. Um, you know, you could do, Okay, you can reset. The only way you can reset your password is through the system. Uh, so I, you know, I feel like um, you can say, hey, that password reset process is a use case that is even more risky than the authentication itself. Now you're trying to take over an account that you don't even have access. You don't even know the, the password for, for example. Um, the other thing I always thought was interesting about that story is I mean, this maybe will transition topics a little bit is, you know, when you're rolling out a technology, you have two populations to think about. One is the existing users and the other is, you know, use, new users as they come on board. The new users as they come on board, um, in general, we're going to have a trickle of them, right? We're going, you know, we hire somebody new, we have to get them registered as part of onboarding as a new employee, uh, but in a scenario where you have hundreds of thousands or millions of users who you need to convert over to the new technology, who they've been doing the job for years, maybe already. And now you, you know, IT came up with this new whiz bang way and it's, you know, how do you get all those people to um, register? You got an interesting story there as well. Um, for registration, you have to refresh my memory. So you ran a contest. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe I forgot about this. <laughs> so, yeah, so so we were, yeah, this we were rolling out identity and access management. And again, this is, you know, mid 2000s. And um, yeah, the idea was to reduce the burden on the team that was handling things like password resets, etc. So we were using KBA at the time, knowledge based authentication, you had to, you know, go in, um, log in with your ID and password and set up your profile with your secret questions and things like that. Um, and then uh, you'd be good to go. And you could then, if you forgot your password, you could go reset it. Um, weren't happy with the enrollment rate and, you know, wasn't really seeing the impact on the call volume going down where it probably should have. And 
we attributed that really to, to the marketing wasn't there behind it. So what we did was we put together a plan where if people enrolled um, and registered a profile, didn't even have to use the system, but at least had a registered profile. And that was something that I could see in the metrics behind the systems. We essentially would give away an iPad. And this was, you know, hot stuff at the time, right? An iPad was kind of like the new big thing. And then it became like an Apple watch as we kind of kept things current, et cetera, those sorts of things. But, um, you know, that three to $500 that we were spending to get, you know, that device um, took our enrollment rate from like 60% to over 90% over the course of just a couple of months. And, you know, that combined with some other things, you know, reminders for management, you know, uh, training our, our staff who were answering the calls to ask them if they had enrolled and registered so they could help themselves next time, right? All that stuff. But, you know, out of all the, the millions of dollars that we spent on the, um, on the software itself and the services to get things put in, you know, the marketing budget, which really wasn't, forecasted anywhere, you know, was, was probably the biggest driver to actually getting the adoption out there. So, you know, that's a way to get creative with it. I think, you know, it, it becomes part of the, the flow now, a lot of times when people are signing up for new accounts, it's, it's just there. Um, and it's just the way it works. But at the time it was certainly helpful. And, you know, maybe it's, they, maybe there's still a place for things like that to get creative with your user base and, and uh, incent them, you know, to take advantage of whatever services you're trying to to push out there so that it helps uh, at the end of the day, get you back a better return on the investment. I think incentives are a big thing. Um, you know, I've been refreshed in my, my desire to talk about gamification. I, uh, I feel like even something as simple as like badges and uh, things like that within your user interface can get people excited about being good about, I, you know, doing I am, uh, but certainly, you know, look, going and registering for the voice print, people are, you know, by that by itself, not excited about doing that. But if they have a chance to win something out of it, or they, you know, get a sticker or whatever, whatever you're doing, uh, incentivizing users, uh, I think ought to be at least a consideration. Yeah, I mean, you want to drive the behavior where you want it to go, right? So if you can send users to to do the right thing, you know, matter what it is, then you know whatever money you spend that way, that's is probably going to help drive it. Is going to be a good thing. So yeah, encourage the behavior you want to see. Discourage the behavior that you don't want to see. You know, you, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in terms of kind of methods for multi-factor is um, hard tokens, and you know, a, a real popular version of that today is the YubiKey. Um, I, I did just want to bring that up. So that's a great scenario where you don't have people necessarily where you want to rely on uh, phones. However, it, they're kind of expensive, right? You've got the cost of the token, but uh, one thing not to lose sight of is the cost of administering that process, issuing those and, and kind of life cycle of those. And so um, I think a lot of folks think, you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind and it's great, but if you have a very large population of users, it might not be uh, feasible. Uh, you know, let's take that Instacart example. It's not going to be feasible for Instacart to issue YubiKeys. It's going to create a poor user experience. I don't think IVR is right for those users either, but, you know, some kind of adaptive authentication, something where you can send something via SMS and 
look, SMS is, we know it's, it's insecure because of, of SIM hacking and things like that. However, um, you know, SIM hacking to steal somebody's uh, shopping preferences is probably not something someone's going to go through. Right. So again, it's just taking that risk-based approach and saying, you know, let's not let um, perfection be the enemy of good enough <laughs> or better. You know, that's kind of the old um, uh, Six Sigma philosophy. It's like, let's, let's improve a process. Let's make it more secure than it is today. Um, and again, balancing that user experience, because I think that's key here. Anything is better than nothing. That's the way I do it. <laughs> that's, that's probably <laughs> true. You know, Instacart's, we keep getting back to Instacart. I don't, you know, don't mean to beat up on them, but they have an app, right? And you can build in the push authentication into the app. So I don't really see that as an excuse. And where is the app? It's on your mobile device, which you have to have a phone number to register and sign up with. So there you go. You know, another avenue that they could probably push something down. You mentioned email before. So there's... There's plenty of options there, I feel like, um, you know, something to consider for, for folks down the road. Well, here's the sad part is that I think there's nothing that motivates people to act more than a crisis. And, you know, you hate to think that it's going to take a crisis to act. But, I mean, to use a real world example, it's maybe a horrible example, but 9-11, right? 9-11 happened in the United States. Now to get on an airplane, you have to go through all these processes. I remember showing up for airplanes like, you know, 10 minutes before they boarded and just flying through security prior to 9-11 and just getting on a plane. And it was, you know, you could, you could pack your Bowie knife in your, in your carry on and, and get through. Um, maybe not, but you, you get what I'm saying is like that crisis uh, spun out into all these different new actions. And I see it a lot in information security where organizations fall victim to some of these things, which were, you know, which are, are foreseeable. Um, and then when the, when the crisis hits, then the investment follows, I guess what I would recommend or, or urge for our fellow practitioners to try to get ahead of it, try to do the planning, at least be vocal about what the risks are, because that puts you in a good position that no one can say, why didn't you tell us this could happen? We didn't know. That's the position you, you know, our our fellow practitioners need to uh, avoid is that they never spoke up, they never communicated the risks, and then the crisis takes place, and then you are the fall guy or fall gal, whichever right. case may be. <laughs> Remove ignorance as a defense mechanism by informing mm -hmm. the appropriate people. Right when. And it all comes down to a risk and a business decision. Do you want to invest the money um, before or after the breach? Uh, so, you know, what's what's going to be more expensive? Will your organization survive a breach, right? So that's another thing too is, you know, if, if something bad were to happen, is it something that your organization could recover from? So that's part of the equation as well. And, you know, informing the appropriate folks who would make the ultimate decision on budgets and, you know, directives and so forth. Um, you know, again, remove, remove ignorance of, of, of that from the defense, because at the end of the day, um, you want to make sure that people are aware, aware of the challenges and, you know, what the recommendations are. And if there's a decision made not to follow the recommendation, 
um, you know, then, then at least, you know, I would feel better sleeping at night saying, okay, well, you know, I made the recommendation. This is what I feel like. And ultimately the decision was made not to follow it. You know, I've done what I can. Let me move on. I try to bring it up maybe a different, different way later on, or, you know, maybe something else comes up, those sorts of things. Not, maybe not necessarily let it die, but sometimes it is what it is. Well, we've been jabbering about MFA for like 45 minutes. So I think that's plenty of time to spend on it. What do you think? I think we could go on for another 45, but I, I'm, I'm with you there. I, you know, I think I'm afraid we would keep jumping on Instacart. <laughs> one of these upcoming episodes, we got to take, you know, each of these topics and kind of drill into them. One of the things we didn't talk much about today was FIDO2. We've got an upcoming episode to talk to somebody from FIDO. I don't want to give away the, the, the big name that we have lined up, but oh, we uh, can, that's going to can we? Okay. Andrew Shikiar, yeah. CEO of yep. Fido, uh, is going to join us. Um, and hopefully that will be our next episode. I mean, Fido is really, uh, um, you know, an opportunity to, you know, leverage some of the um, you know, technology, but also just the consumer devices that have strong MFA already built into them to leverage that authentication in the, in the authentication process for your enterprise or web applications. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's, it's interesting how this is something that I think has been coming for a long time, uh, being able to take advantage uh, of things like Windows Hello, uh, Apple's Face ID and Touch ID and, uh, you know, the Google equivalents, et cetera, to be able to authenticate users. And I think the big, the big thing is FIDO2 and the web authentication um, protocol or standard that they're putting out there. And the fact that they've got all of the major players essentially on board, you've got Apple, Microsoft, and Google, um, you know, all contributing to, you know, this effort, which I think is a great thing. It's not something that you see all the time, right? Where, uh, essentially competitors in a variety of spaces have come together, but they're really looking to solve the authentication challenge. So looking forward to that conversation with Andrew, um, coming up. It's one of the security, uh, is one of the places where uh, I think we can all um, agree on what the bad guy is or the bad actor. It's people trying to access uh, people's accounts and they're not supposed to. <laughs> you know, we all have a right to, uh, you know, our own data and not have people steal it. So I don't think this is, you know, our, our society is as polarized on many things things, but I think this is something we can all kind of agree on. And that's probably why, you know, all the, the tech giants can come together and, and kind of agree to some security standards because it moves the ball forward. It makes it harder for uh, those bad actors to, um, you know, perpetrate their crimes. These are crimes. Yep. Reduces risk. Um, Improves the user experience. Sounds like a win-win to me. So we're looking forward to talking with Andrew and learning more about FIDO and FIDO2 here in the near future. So folks can look forward to that. Um, anything else that you want to close up with, uh, Jim? No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the summer's drawing to a close and uh, I'd like to go enjoy a little bit of sun and fun this weekend. How about you, Jeff? 
yeah, finally some decent weather here in the Chicago area. So we're looking at like high 70s only in the 50 or 60% humidity range. So that's good. Um, so maybe we'll get out and maybe we'll hit Top Golf uh, this weekend. Not quite sure yet, but you know, big weekend plans. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just you know, socially distance, wear your wear your mask, and uh, and when when you at least when you're around other people, and uh, try to enjoy the rest of the summer. Or yep, exactly. you know, if you're in the southern hemisphere, see this is this is part of what I think we run into. Jeff is our uh, U.S. centric focus, right? I keep saying enjoy the summer. Well, in the southern hemisphere, it's not summer, right? Right. It's winter. You've got hurricanes bearing down on Florida right now, and all kinds of other stuff going around. So, I guess enjoy life wherever you are, and stay happy and healthy. How about that? I like that. that. I like Glo- that. Globally generic message. enough for everybody. <laughs> okay, good. Um, <laughs> we shouldn't have right. offended anybody by stay happy. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So with that, we're going to close it. Um, you know, that was uh, a good topic we had here today on multi-factor authentication. Um, you can always visit the show at identityatthecenter.com. You know, encourage folks to like and subscribe and all the do the good stuff in your podcast app for us that helps us, uh, you know, grow the show and get better and better guests. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at IDAC podcast and uh, look forward to engaging with folks there. So with that, we'll go ahead and close it for this week and we'll talk with you all in the next one. Thanks for listening. listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.